Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. This week, I'm joined by Omid Fatoui. Omid is a research psychologist who has dedicated his life to exploring and researching the processes and scientific mechanisms underlying human motivation and performance. He earned his PhD in psychology from the University of Waterloo and later helped to co-found the College Transition Collaborative and Stanford Interventions Lab at Stanford University. He is currently the Director of Learning and Innovation at WGU Labs and a research associate at the Learning Research and Development Center at the University of Pittsburgh. And today, we are talking about belonging. We're going to be talking about belonging, both at work, in our personal lives, in our communities. And I'm interested in my standard question that I ask everyone. Um, and I have asked this of people um, in interviews for my prior mentoring programs. And I think it really gets to like the essence of us. So there's your question. It is, if you remove all references to work, school, sports, religious activities, uh, um, research, all the things that you do in your life, if you take all of those and sit them aside, what are you most proud of about yourself as a human being? Uh, I would definitely, and I have some clarity on this because I do tend to be a relatively reflective person. And that is what I'm most proud about, um, which is that I have been able to, to engage in the process of growth, um, which has allowed me to cheat and bypass many of the demographic predictions of how I ought to be doing based on where I came from. Um, and that commitment to growth is something that I live and breathe constantly. You mentioned earlier that sometimes there's an integration of your whole self or personal self and work self. I'm not sure many people are ready for my whole self 
in, in either context. In fact, my father-in-law who's uh, living with us, my father my, and mother-in-law who's living with us now here, while we're in here in Canada, <clears throat> this morning, I guess, stumbled across one of my presentation videos and he comes up to me and he's like, you sound so smart in your videos and that's not at all what you're like when it's just you and me. <laughs> um, but, but that's because I think under the surface and, you know, there's a great deal of um, pride in, in being able to take advantage of, of the privilege that I've had from being, be, being exposed to psychology and literature and great minds and great people who have reflected on their own lives. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. And the pride part comes in knowing the value of that and taking advantage of that to improve my own being. Um, so it's interesting that you that you use the word, you know, what are, what are you most proud about in terms of being a human being? Um, it, for me, it is that constant focus on on the being part that I'm um, ever present and and constantly working on. It's obnoxious to many people because it's it's a flame that burns very strong, um, uh, and you know. It's something that not everybody can relate to, but it's, it is something that I've, um, that's been my reality and, and my place of uh, strength. So, um, <clears throat> and then tacking that on to the second part that I would say I'm, I am proud of as well, is that I've, in recognizing the value of, of the, the well of, of power that comes from insights, um, having committed and um, devoted some time and energy to sharing that out, with folks that I think can benefit from it. So whether in my work or personal life, um, I've tried to apply what I've, what I've seen to be powerful uh, in the service of improving the lives of others. So. That's awesome. I love that you talk about that. I, I did coach training where we talked about the difference between how we in our society are always talking about, like when we meet each other, we say, so what do you do? So that's why I start with that question because mm -hmm we always talk about what somebody does, but it doesn't, but we're not human doings, we're human beings. So how can we talk about who are you really? Mm -hmm. And so that's part of why we ask that question is just to think about who are you underneath it all. And I'm interested, you talked a little bit about um, the, your dedication to growth, but I don't know exactly what that means. And so maybe could you expand on that a little bit? And then you, that's one part of the question. The second part of the question is, you mentioned right off the, off the bat that you, you're connected to growth and that you've been able to use your reflective capabilities to, to move from a place of where you think you should, like where, where the idea that you should be in your life is. Can you talk about that? Because our listeners won't know you. So tell me a little bit about both of those things. Sure, and, and I'm not sure that I have uh, an entirely unique background, but it certainly is one um, that <clears throat> uniquely was challenging because, because I had to go through it by myself. And so some of the, you know, I think um, broad level kinds of experiences. So my family was, we were, we were, were from Iran. We had to flee the country when there was a revolution. Um, we got scattered when I was about four years old. Um, and then we found ourselves in a new world where the culture and the norms were very different. 
And my father and my mother were also very different people. And then when they landed in this different world, they also just came to realize how different they were. So that led to an extended separation process that from the age of 10 uh, till the age of 14, um, going through that and not knowing why that's happening, there's a lot of internalization of trying to figure out how, why is this happening? It challenges your worldviews and, and your perceptions of what's fair, um, what belonging is, and your your place in the world. And so <clears throat> I think there was, um, and again, I'm not unique in, in this scenario. Um, another sort of offshoot consequence of all of that is um, that because of the separation, my mother then, who was now in charge of the, all three of us kids, uh, with no language and no skills in a new world, had to fight for herself and fend for herself. And all she had was her fight. And that's one of the things I've learned from her is, you know, keep fighting until you get there. Uh, but she had it rough and she still has it rough in many regards. Um, and so we grew up in dire poverty. We grew up with, with very basic, minimal kinds of uh, essential resources. So it was not uncommon in the winter times when she didn't have money to pay for the electric bill. Uh, and so as a, as a kid, you kind of go through it and experience things in a different way. You wonder why is it that other kids have more and why is it that you don't have the same things? But at the same time, you're also kind of innocent. So you're able to navigate through the, those things. I remember going to the washroom my brothers and I used to think that it was, it was kind of funny that we would see the steam come out whenever we, you know, we were in the bathroom. <laughs> we thought it was cool. Didn't for a second reflect on the fact that, you know, we, we were cold and didn't have electricity. Um, but then that, that also, you know, that your challenges become a source of strength in many regards. Um, and so that, that then fed into my hunger, which to this day is, is what fuels my eternal desire for growth. Um, and so those challenges, I think, are part of who I am and part of what has given me the hunger to keep growing and keep moving upwards. And again, I don't think that I'm unique in that kind of demographic description or, or, or category. There are, there are many individuals who, who have to deal with many circumstantial challenges that are not of their own doing, but they're, they're left with the choice of what do I do with this? Um, and there's a subjectivity to challenge um, that we all navigate on a daily basis. And how we decide and how we make meaning of those challenges determines what our next step is. This is, is my circumstance a fatalistic um, and fixed state and representation of the rest of my life? Or is there um, an opportunity for me to move out of this and move towards a better life? And that's one of the things that I've constantly held close to my heart, regardless of how hard things have gotten. Um, and so that's where the, the desire for growth and improvement comes from. And it also comes from, you know, there's the challenges in, in, in our lives are both uh, difficulties that we have to contend with, but they're also the, the blessings that define who we are. And so for me, knowing what, where I came from and what my mom had to go through to get us basically, you know, clothes on our back into school, uh, she supported us through college, whichever way she could, whenever we needed some support, she would find a way at our own sacrifice. Um, but all the while there was still this instability and uncertainty about, you know, am I gonna, am I gonna be able to pay for this? Or am I gonna be able to afford this? Is this gonna be something that um, I'll be able to see through? Those, those experiences are, are, are experiences that I would never want for my own children. And, and that hunger to, to give them the security that I didn't have 
has been something that's always driven me. Uh, and by extension, I've always wondered how I can continue to extend, um, you know, and you and I know that my background is in psychology and, and the value of, of the contributions that I bring are from insights from psychology. And so in addition to my children, I've always also wondered how is it that we can continue to help others who are going through similar circumstances to be able to see the potential for growth and improvement in their own lives um, and share that whenever I can. I'm interested in how, because we're gonna talk about belonging, a couple of things came up for me. Uh, a few months ago, I wrote a blog post called Loneliness at Work. And it was one of my most popular blog posts. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and a lot of people, um, like it was the thing that Google found the most, et cetera. And I thought, wow, that's a, it's a big thing that people feel like this is a thing that we may not be talking about enough. And it made me think, you know, I have this suspicion that the reason that people are feeling loneliness at work has a lot to do with their, our sense of belonging um, as well. And so I kind of wanted to get at that in this conversation as well, in terms of like, I don't know, what do you think about that loneliness and belonging and how they fit together? And also how would, how do you yourself define belonging? What does that mean? Yeah, those are great questions. And and seemingly simple, but actually quite complex. So let's start with belonging. The way that I think about belonging is that um, it is ultimately a, a fundamental need. Um, and the, the reason why I emphasize that is that it's not a desire. And the distinction between a desire and a need is that you can have your desires not met, but you can continue to function, right? Like I can yeah. desire a new car, a new house, um, maybe something um that I, I've always wanted to wanted to have, but don't don't have, and I'll continue to function. I may be bothered by it in the short term, but that's all right. When a fundamental need is not satisfied, you can't function. And so, um, because ultimately we are evolved to be very vigilant for cues and signs that it, that signal to us that we are part of a tribe, that we are part of a group. Um, that will ultimately convey to us whether we will survive because as individuals who are outcast from a particular tribe, we're not going to do that. And so even the, the perception or the, the, the risk of a signal that suggests that you don't belong um, activates all sorts of challenges and all sorts of uncertainties. I think with a recognition that we in our current society have come to integrate um, work and social life. Um, that's where some of these these threats are born out of. Because mm-hmm. again, you know, may, may not even that long ago, uh, people viewed work as work and and personal life as personal life. So it was actually easier to go into potentially an uncomfortable, hostile. Um, not not very welcoming uh, work environment, get through the day and then go back home to where you thought you belong. <clears throat> but in many regards, because we have tried to create these contexts where social and personal and work lives are integrated, there's the tensions are now contaminating or conflating with, with, with each other. And so now when we go into the workplace- Like we might think it's a good idea, but it also has these painful effects in some places as well. 
Yeah, and, and I don't know that I can comment on whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. I think the value comes in recognizing what it is for what it is. Yeah. And so when you're navigating these feelings of, I don't know that my boss, I feel like my boss truly validates and appreciates all the work that I'm doing. Uh, and that feels ultimately very isolating to me. Um, then recognizing that this context of work um, and the, the ex expectation that it is this socially welcoming and comfortable place or that it ought to be, um, knowing that that's the current context and conditions that we live in uh, might help you navigate why you're feeling, how you're feeling. Um, I don't want to suggest that we shouldn't be moving towards a greater integration of social and professional lives. I think it, I think there's a lot of value, as you mentioned, and as your podcast is, is you know, named 92,000 hours. Um, you want to make sure that, or you want to try to see if there are ways that you can create a better experience, a more fulfilling, a meaningful experience in that context, um, given how much time you spend in that context. But if you do that, then sometimes you have to realize that in the work context, there are standards of performance by which your interactions um, with your peers and your bosses are determined. So there's a clear script in terms of how to reward or punish um, performance. And so if you think of that as being the, the foundational operating system on which we're trying to add on the experience of perceived belonging, then you can understand where there's, there's potential conflict. Uh, but again, that's not to say that it's not possible. In fact, we're seeing a, a great deal of movement in leadership and corporations and building cultures of greater uh, belonging and acceptance and, um, and you know, just recognizing the value of individual uh, autonomy. Um, move towards being able to be more conducive of that. Um, but in the workplace, um, the, this notion of loneliness, I think, is not su surprising to me because at times you have this expectation, this hope that you will come to feel like you belong and that you do belong in that place, while at the same time being implicitly or explicitly aware that there are these standards uh, of, of performance that you have to live up to. So it's when you think of belonging in sort of its ideal form, you hope that you are unconditionally accepted and, and regarded. When you put that in the context of conditionality of performances, you can see how these things are challenged. Um, but uh, but that's, those are some of the, the I, I think, the, the forces that feed into our experiences. Um, and, and going back to your question about, you know, how do you define belonging? I think belonging is this, this need that needs to be uh, satisfied. If it's not, we do feel a great deal of uh, disruption to functioning. And for those individuals who look at work or invest um, too heavily in work as the core part of their social interactions and their social experiences, you are going to find more disruption for those individuals in the instances where they're not getting the validation that they, that they desire because they don't have the personal life at home to balance any disruptions or um, risks to the, the security of belonging that they might have, um, that might, they might have a need for. So if, if we have, 
as we think about that, I was reading some studies that show that that empirically showed that when people do have a sense of belonging at work, there is in fact greater um, output. There's greater, you know, the, the, the company, the organization, whatever it is, does as a whole does better. Um, so I'm interested in your thoughts on what, are, what are the roles of leaders in organizations to create a sense of belonging for the people that they work with? Yeah. Um, I think that's right. And, and that basic statistic, again, is just informed by the fact that belonging is a fundamental need. And if it's disrupted, we can't function. So if you can't function because you're constantly distracted by trying to figure out, do I belong? Does this person value me or not? Then you become distracted, A, and then hypervigilant about cues or signs that confirm whether you do or don't belong. Um, and in many instances, that's so true. That's so true. Right. Like I know that I've done that in situations. So yeah, that's absolutely true. From an evolutionary perspective, you are designed to be incredibly attuned to signals of belonging because if you don't belong, you will not survive. And so that hardwire hardwiring is still with us. Uh, it might be um, no longer as relevant for determining whether we, we will survive or not, but it's still fully operational and functional. And so we're constantly vigilant for cues that maybe we don't belong. In fact, in our defense mechanism, when we even start to question whether we do belong, our default response adaptively is to disengage and protect ourselves. Because if you think that you might be ousted from a group, then you become hypervigilant for cues that confirm that you don't in, in fact belong. Yeah. Um, and you'll pick up on those more um, in light of the fact that social interactions are very ambiguous, right? Especially in, in, a, in an environment where there are expectations and pressures like you and I um, socially will probably have a wonderful time because there's no constraints in terms of how we're gonna spend the next hour, two hours. But if you and I are in a work setting, and I um, know that you've got a deadline and back-to-back -back meetings and I just want to sort of keep chatting and you're like, I got to go. Um, that abrupt um, departure might leave me wondering, what does that mean, right? Like, I know that I, I care about this person, but I think this person cares about me, but then they're giving me these signals that they're too busy. Uh, and because I'm motivated to make sure that I do belong, I'm, I'll actually be more likely to interpret that sign that I that I don't belong because it's easier for me to say, I'm gonna move on and find somewhere where I do belong. I'm not gonna stick around in an in a interaction where I have to ask and question whether I do or don't belong. Um, so I think definitely that, that the disruption of normal functioning is something that uh, prevents people from being able to, to perform well in the work context. Um, and in terms of what leaders are doing, there's a lot that leaders are doing. First of all, people, leaders are becoming aware that this core need to belong is fundamental, that they, and in part motivated, I don't wanna say entirely motivated by the fact that greater belonging leads to better productivity, um, but certainly is, has been uh, at the forefront of a lot of these trainings and, and I think evolutions in terms of how we think about management and leadership. Um, so that's been one, I think, development in the past couple of decades that's really been, been moving quickly. Uh, and as a result, leaders are becoming more attuned to what the needs of their, their, their teams are. They're creating cultures and opportunities that are conducive to greater belonging. They 
Um, they build in opportunities uh, and interactions that aren't solely tra transactional, so that they, their conversations won't be uh, solely focused on, hey, what have you done and have you met your, your expectations? They, they build in some social um, time for those, those relationships as well. Um, I don't know that I can think of too many people who in this, in this country who can uh, who will say that their their relationship with with their with their teams or their bosses is entirely business driven? I think many people are now saying that their relationships are a little bit more than that um, because of how we now realize the importance of of this belonging is. Um, the other thing that's worth mentioning is that <clears throat> those concerns about belonging uh, can differ. Um, not only by between individuals, but by groups of individuals as well. We started off by, at, you asked me, you know, what are you most proud of and what are the challenges that you've overcome? Well, I come from a background where there um, was not clear sign that I, that my place in society is secured for me. And so as I navigate my social interactions, um, some of my operating system is constantly vigilant for signs that maybe that isn't in fact True, right? I think there, there's a vigilance there that that makes me wonder: Am I just an imposter in this context? Am I am I going to be found out? Do do others really think about my work as being valuable um, because of the group that I come from or the stereotypes that exist? So, if I were part of a different uh, gender or racial group, there are also these these stereotypes in in the air. Um, that absent any other clarification uh, in those moments of ambiguity become the sole piece of evidence that I have to, I, that I have to lean on. And then that again, colors my perceptions of what that interaction means. So there are, there are groups and individuals who are more likely to wonder if they do belong. And once they do, they fall into that sort of paralysis of questioning their belonging and no longer function at the optimal level. Where you, where you see me going with this is that a lot of times these, these um, this need for belonging and this concern or questioning of your belonging feeds into a vicious cycle. So if you, you ultimately have this strong need to feel like you belong in a particular context, but you don't have the, the, the past experiences or, or the, the cultural references to give you the security that you do belong in that place, then that question is always looming large in your mind and because of that, you're not able to perform your job effectively, which in, which in turn feeds into more concern about whether you're actually you know, equipped and, and capable of doing this job, making you more vigilant and less functional in, in, that, in that job as well. If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You are listening to 92,000 Hours. Today, we are talking to Omid Fatui about belonging. Let's jump back in. Within different industries, 
um, or even different workplaces or even different teams, people create their own acronyms, they create their own languages. And I think they often it's done with the best of intentions to create a team language or um, or an industry language, et cetera. But, but not only does, so it creates an environment of inclusivity for the people who were already in, but definitely exclusivity for the people who don't know what those things mean and right. can both, it can both bring more belonging and also hamper belonging. And I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, signaling is a big part of um, group belonging, right? I think if you, uh, and, and that's exactly how we communicate. You, you'll never hear someone say explicitly, you don't belong, right? It's just not how we communicate. And that's because in part, we don't need to. We have other mechanisms to clearly convey to our group, in group, whether they do or don't belong. And it's uh, in many regards, in many ways, um, and an invitation to learn about and practice some of these, these cultural norms and practices that we have. Um, so I think that's absolutely right on point. We have, um, we have a tendency to create a, a, our own set of language and terms that signals to us whether or not this person does belong or does not belong. Um, and it's a challenge, right? Because at times, at, at least on the surface, it seems as though there's this functional purpose to just be more efficient, like there are technical terms you have to use. Yeah. Um, but, but even things like sarcasm or humor or cultural references those are also layers of signaling um, that either keep people out or uh, convey that they are included. Within, a, within coherent groups, you'll also have subgroups uh, where again, there's a clear understanding of who's in and who's out. Um, and because these are such sophisticated dynamics, um, in part because if, so, so let me, let me let me kind of unpack this for a second. When you're in a work setting, you have to work with others. That means you expect a certain level of cooperation and collaboration. That means that you'll rely on others, right? And so there's, there's a lot of reasons not to, to tell others that they don't belong because you're gonna expect them to do what you want them to do. At the same time, you want to belong to a group where you feel um, has the greatest utility and is more, most similar to you, yourself. And so how, you can, how you're able to manage that dynamic is to implicitly have these, these social practices and signals that allow you to feel and know who your in-group is while never explicitly excluding others, but always letting them wonder whether they are or are not part of this group. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of a psychologist, I forget her name, but she, she, um, she had a great example about the, the different kinds of friendships that people have and, and, um, and the potential benefits and costs. And she, she highlights the three kinds of friendships. She says there are those friendships that you clearly know, you know that they're there, they care about you, that, that, that you're part of that group. Then there's a group of people who you clearly know that you're not friends with. Um, and in fact, you know, somewhere along the line- And you're you okay with it. And you're okay with it. <laughs> And she, she highlights the, the most dangerous group, which is that group of people that you just don't know if they have your best intentions in mind, if, if you belong to, to that group. And that's the most harmful group because you're constantly wondering in every interaction, what does this person actually think about me? Um, and that becomes very taxing. Um, so when you're on the out, 
you're motivated to want to get in. So you're, you're, you're sort of always processing these questions. But when you're on the in and excluding others, you're motivated to not give them clarity about whether they do or don't belong. Um, but you clear, have clear signals within the group that you're part of about who does or does not belong. Um, and I know I'm getting a little bit more like, you know, uh, the art of war kind of kind of thing. But but these are normal, these are normal mechanisms and, and it just highlights the incredible sophistication that humans have of communicating belonging, which is a fundamental right. need on many different la layers, and that even within large groups, there are subgroups of belonging um, that people are navigating all the time and trying to figure out, is this somewhere where I feel like my best intentions are valued or or not? So that, that's where the and challenge it is. come up for you in ways, it, when you're talking about this, it reminded me, years and years ago, I was, I could, oh, there was a, there was a group of people who were conducting interviews for a new employee. And I was in another room, but I could hear them talking after an interviewee left. Mm -hmm. And it was good. I mean, it was not, they said what, what I'm sure they would consider to be a really nice thing. They were, I could hear them say, Oh, she was great. She's one of us. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in the other room and thinking, she's one of us. What does that even mean? Like I could hear them saying that. And I know it was innocuous for them, but all of a sudden I was thinking, I don't think I'm one of them. I, like mm -hmm. when I think of what they might be meaning by one of us, mm -hmm. now suddenly I'm, I'm in that middle space you just described where I'm like, I don't know if I'm one of them. Now I'm wondering, I thought I was in, but maybe I'm not, maybe I'm in this weird space. Yeah. And I think that's a fascinating place we find ourselves in at work, even when we're the people who say the oh, they're great, they're one of us, could be actually defining for other people, you know, who's right and who's not right. Right, it, yeah. In ways you don't even know you're doing. Yeah, and, and again, just to sort of nail it on the head, um, I would say the most psychologically and emotionally taxing experience is what's known as this belonging uncertainty. This constantly wondering whether you do or don't belong, um, because if you, if you know one way or the, or the other that you do or don't belong, then that's in many ways actually a lot easier. Your mind can now focus on other things to either disengage and form new new, new groups or to stay committed uh, to the group that you're with. But not knowing is really the, the most, I would say, um, damaging um, and difficult psychological experience to navigate through. Um, and that's why, to your point earlier, I think, leadership and organizations are realizing um, the value of training and, and helping their employees have better clarity um, about their, their belonging in that workplace. And so they're, they're, they're understanding that things like um, explicitly conveying um, the value of each individual in each group in that context uh, can go a long way. Because if you are not sure, then having that explicit explanation that you do belong can actually be pretty powerful. And then in addition to that, making sure that you have systems and structures where there's a clear interaction on equal levels um, for as many people as, as you're, you're interested in, in creating that sense of belonging for helps again to foster that sense of belonging. So there's a great, great deal of insights and progress that's happening in that regard. So I had a, one of the people on this podcast um, talked about, I just thought this was an incredibly vulnerable thing to do. Um, but, but 
is a CEO of a nonprofit and, and part of her um, actual bio on NABO, on National Association of Women Business Owners, has a section in it that says um, a pra- uh, uh, that she is a survivor of domestic abuse that she puts in her business bio. And I thought, I like, you never see stuff like that. It's incredibly vulnerable. And when I asked her about that, she said on purpose, she's doing that because she wanted people to know that there are people who are domestic violence survivors who are in positions of leadership. And if you find yourself in that position, you can be too. And I wonder what you think about about that, because I do think that often we don't know as individuals whether we do belong, because in some ways we, as leaders, speak about the the best of us and um, or the the highlights rather than the whole of who we are. I don't even know if I'm getting at what I'm trying to get at, but do yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, and you're touching on, again, um, a couple of fundamental things. First, we, we want to belong. And second, we want to belong to the, the social groups of greatest status. Mm-hmm. And you touched on this with, uh, with the signaling systems that we have to convey who belongs within our social class and who does not. And that constantly people who are on the lower ends or lower groups um, as, as sort of normally norm, normatively accepted are trying to get into those higher higher level groups. Um, but what's happened, I think, in recent years is uh, almost a, 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 a reversal of, uh, of the implicit subjugation of certain groups as being less than, uh, and those groups recognizing that they can be proud and articulate and vocal about their group's identification. Because one of the gen- things that's challenging is that if you feel that you don't belong in a particular group or status group that, that you uh, would like to, you feel like you are on the outs. And when you feel like you are on the outs, you feel like you are alone, mm. right? And that's what's really fundamentally challenging is if you feel like you're, you're alone or isolated in that exclusion, then you start to wonder, how am I going to survive? How am I going to thrive? And one way I think that people are coming to realize that they can reduce that feeling of isolation uh, is to articulate that, no, in fact, you are part of a larger group. There are many of us like this going through these kinds of experiences and still functioning and operating and being fully, fully fulfilled. Uh, and that can be incredibly comforting. So even if you don't find yourself fitting into your immediate most proximal social group that you would like to, knowing that there are somewhere around the world or somewhere around the company, there are others who are going through a similar thing can address that feeling of loneliness that is at the root cause for why belonging uncertainty is so harmful and so, and so difficult. So I think it's really fascinating and powerful how we're seeing a lot of this on LinkedIn. I think it's pretty common where people are, are clearly advocating that they're first generation. Um, so being vocal uh, and being able to share this is vulnerable for you because potentially you're putting yourself at risk for being uh, subject, subject, subject to some uh, negative um, inclusion or exclusion experiences. But at the same time, it's serving the broader group by getting that sense of connection within individuals in that group. And we all belong to different groups, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, it's just with 7.5 billion, whatever we're at now, invariably there will be a lot of people like us. And with technology, we are actually able to create a sense of belonging with people that we'll never even meet, right? So I think there's a lot of value there. 
Um, and so as we think about the workplace, are there ways that we can create similar kinds of opportunities for, for people to, to have that sense of belonging with each other, even if it's not within their own department or their own small, small group? Um, so again, there's some really creative strategies and opportunities to, to fulfill that sense of belonging that maybe we, we couldn't do previously. When have you felt like you truly belonged at work? What were the circumstances present for you? What was that like for you? So um, I'm gonna take a second to reflect on that question. <clears throat> um, I began this conversation by saying that one of the things I'm most grateful for is the, the power that the insights of psychology have given me. Um, and for me, one of the biggest challenges, um, which I think, again, is not unique to me, but one of the challenges I've had to navigate throughout my whole life is constantly wondering whether I do belong. In fact, the literature shows that people who are more conscientious, who in fact are actually more um, capable in their work, often are crippled with more of these anxieties and uncertainties about, you know, are they doing the job well enough? Do they belong? I totally agree with that, by the way. I run mentoring programs and I always, when I get mentors who say, I'm not sure I'm a good enough mentor, I say, that's the signal to me that I know you're who that you are. <laughs> right. And and it's easy to give that advice to others, I think. Yeah. But what's, what's been powerful <laughs> for me is being able to take that advice for myself. So now, rather than um, interpreting that those signals of maybe I'm not getting the feedback that I want, or maybe I'm not sure whether I do belong, I have enough insight from the body of literature from psychology to know that that belonging uncertainty is not warranted or based on any actual threats to my belonging, but in fact, it's a signal that I, I care about what I'm doing and I'm caring about connection. Um, I say this subtly and I, I don't want to, to convey that it's a simple thing to do or that once you've figured it out that it's always going to be there. It's, it's a skill that you have to apply every single time that it happens, uh, but that over time it actually becomes like a strengthened muscle that you just get better at using. So definitely I think belonging, uncertainty and imposter syndrome and, and navigating upwards through the social classes in our society has been something that I've had to manage and navigate internally and externally, but I have had a great deal of help from psychology um, and I feel incredibly privileged which is why I also think it's valuable that we're having conversations like this, that you're sharing this with people, um, that we, we share out as much as possible. Um, like you said in the example, the person who shared their, their own past experiences with domestic violence, um, that there's a lot that we can do to, to bring each other along um, towards an upward mobility. At the end of the day, you know, when you think, and I'm a deeply philosophical person, um, there are some assumptions that I think are not necessarily true. And one of those assumptions is that there has to be groups of different social class and levels. I'm not sure that I completely buy into that. I think there certainly can be uh, a great deal of aggregate movements towards higher levels of experience and belonging and social class um, across populations. Um, without necessarily coming at the cost of subgroups. So that's one of the things that I think is really fascinating. I'm also, because you've done, I know I'm only tangentially aware of the work that you did at Stanford, but how that affected like the work on um, belonging and certainty for young people going into college, et cetera. Like talk to me about how 
I mean, there's a part of me that wants to think a lot about this issue of belonging as a parent <laughs> or working with like my own kids or working with college students or working with young people. I'm really interested in your thoughts about belonging in that perspective. Yeah. And you know, then I get meta about how do we talk about belonging in this time when all of the kids are going to school um, virtually so often, like what, what does that mean? And how does that affect belonging? I don't know if you have answers, but these are things in my head right now. Yeah, these are great questions. Um, I think, I think, you know, there's, there's actually a big surge in the research on belonging over the past five years, um, because there's an ongoing recognition that it is a nearly universal experience. Anytime there's a transition into a new role, we all wonder like, you know, can I do this? Do I belong? Um, because we're hardwired to ask those questions and, uh, how quickly you're able to make sense of that question and how you, you navigate away from that question determines a lot of the next steps, which feed into that cycle, right? So again, if you have an ambiguous interaction with a professor, if you get a bad grade in class um, and you start to wonder, are these signs that maybe I don't belong? What happens next is because of your, your protective nature, because you don't, you're not sure that you do belong, then you're not going to double down and engage with the peers and the professors to get you the help that you need to do to do well on that next test or to you know have better clarity about the the, the interactions that you have. You disengage, um, and then that causes you not to learn the materials as well. You're distracted. You, it causes you not to integrate socially as well, um, and then that feeds into a negative negative cycle. So these interventions have recognized this uh, recursive process that once left to itself can lead down this downward spiral. And that when intervened upon, when these interventions are able to come in at a time when students just start to ask these questions in those criti critical moments uh, and, and equip them with slightly more adaptive possibilities about what that experience means. So does getting a D necessarily mean that you don't belong or that you can't cut it? Um, perhaps not. And how they convey that to people is not by telling them explicitly that, hey, getting a bad grade is normal. What they do is they expose those students to other students' experiences. So again, and we touched on this too, when you feel like you don't belong, if you feel like you're the only one going through it, that's when it becomes harmful. But it's okay if you are going through a difficult time and you know that others are too, because then you don't think, okay, this means that I don't belong and I shouldn't be here. It's like if you go to a party, um, if you don't know anybody, you're not going to stick around. But if you know that one other person, then chances are you're going to stick around, you're going to integrate, you're going to find a way to have a good time. Uh, it's also like the storytelling of other people. If other people tell their stories, then you can see yourself in them sometimes. Yeah. And what's fascinating, there's a phenomenon known as pluralistic ignorance. Um, huh. And um, what that is, 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 is there's a, essentially, and there's an interesting metaphor at Stanford called the Stanford Duck Syndrome, where um, as freshmen, the metaphor goes that as freshmen, students come on campus and they look around, they see all these other ducks floating seamlessly across the, the surface of the water. But what they don't see for the other ducks that they see for themselves, that they're paddling yeah. fiercely to stay afloat. So they see their own struggle, but they look around and everyone seems so calm. They all and look they, like they're gliding. They're all <laughs> gliding. Meanwhile, they're all having the same experience about you. 
And so it's fascinating how individual experiences can create a, 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 a process where everybody has the same exact experience, but nobody knows that, that it's shared. And so how you dispel that pluralistic ignorance is by getting people to speak up about their own experiences and their own challenges. And so if you get one person to say, hey, I'm actually working pretty hard to stay afloat, and the person next to you is more likely to say, actually, so am I, right? And then that creates a, a, a cycle that breaks that, that negative pattern. Um, I so love that. This is why we do this podcast <laughs> so that we can all see like underneath the surface, the paddling furiously that people are doing. Yeah. And you do that very <laughs> that well. It's okay. you, you do, you, you, your, your questions are, are, are pointed and, and they get at some pretty raw responses, which, which again, I think to, to your point, that's exactly what they ought to be doing. You know, there's, there's a sense of comfort that comes from knowing that what, what seeming experts or people who seem like they're accomplished or who've got things together actually go through. In fact, when, when I work with professors and administrators, one of the things I always encourage them to do is to humanize themselves at the beginning of the classes, to, to convey to other students and their employees and their, and their peers that they too have had challenges, that they haven't just arrived at their level of success from as a result of one success after another, but they actually had a lot of hiccups. They probably didn't even know where, that they would be end up, end up where they are. I'm not sure I would have predicted that I'd be here five years ago. Most people don't. Um, and, and so normalizing the challenges um, and, and conveying that those challenges and uncertainties are temporary, are two of the, the mechanisms that these psychological interventions um, pioneered by many researchers at Stanford are really effective at doing. Um, and there's, there's lessons to be learned there in terms of what can be applied in the workplace, right? You can, again, create experiences and opportunities for people to share um, so, so that <clears throat> others can understand that what they're going through is, is not unique onto them and that these things pass with time, especially as you move up. I love that. How does that affect when you, given that you know these things about um, uh, pluralistic ignorance, how can you, how can parents uh, think about, you talked at the beginning about how important your parenting was to you. How can we think about the essence of our, our kids and belonging um, as good parents? What, 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 what advice do you have? Yeah. Um, so I'm relatively new to parenting and there's so much I'm learning. And so I, <laughs> I, I also invite anyone who has advice on how to get my kids to sleep at night and, and put on their clothes <laughs> in the morning to email me. I think I'll, I'm happy to swap, swap advice. But in terms of belonging, I think, you know, ultimately it's 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 a desire and a need to feel like you are you have positive regard from others and that you're valued and you're respected so one thing that you can do is you can convey that to your children um, regardless of you know some of the expectations that we have this this also actually echoes the workplace i think increasingly in society there's so much pressure to perform that it even seeps into our, our personal home lives um, and one of the challenges with a lot of this belonging work, as well as the growth mindset and other kinds of uh, psychological interventions is that because we realize the benefits of fostering these kinds of outcomes in terms of performance, we now sort of push uh, individuals to adapt even forcibly those kinds of experiences in the hopes that they get the performances. And what I mean by that is like, 
you would like to be able to have an unconditional sense that you do belong. Um, but parents at times are, because they recognize that that's what's gonna help them do better in college, um, tell them to, to understand that they will belong so that they can go and do something that maybe they're not really you know, ready for or wanna do or, um, and, and I don't certainly don't wanna suggest that um, the education or striving upwards is a positive thing, I think it absolutely is, but forcing the experience of belonging or using it as a tool to achieve a performance or an opportunity outcome sometimes doesn't work well. And so as a parent, one thing that you can do is just make sure that you really truly value your children for who they are and, and for the choices that they make. Um, give them the flexibility to make mistakes and, and deviate from the paths that, that maybe you had in mind for them. Because once they have that solid foundation, they can then go into new worlds and new environments with the confidence that they have that stability at home and know that if perhaps that new environment isn't for them, they can always come back and try a different one. But if they don't they have- belong there. That whoever they are, they belong with right. their family, like that right. their parents will find them to belong in that environment. Right, and implicitly they're also conveying to, um, to their children, and, and one of the things I think I'm trying to do as well, is that belonging and performance are not necessarily tied. That, you yeah. know, if you don't perform well, it's not gonna question whether you belong, not in my eyes. And when you are able to convey that to your children, then they don't go into those new performance domains with that uncertainty about whether that's the case for them. So that's probably one of the most powerful things I would say that parents can, can take away is, is um, disentangling um, performance conditions on, on the conditions of belonging. I think that's right, because just as an aside from my work in my mentoring programs, I did the I did those mentoring programs for 15 years. And during that process, we halfway through the semester or halfway through the academic year, we would have once one session where we spoke and it was like the place where the dam usually broke. But it was the what are you afraid of? And we talked with these college students from around the lots of different experiences and backgrounds. And one of the most universal things that those college students were, were, the, were existentially afraid of was disappointing their parents, almost to a person. Right. And yeah. I think we all are that way. We just want our parents to be proud of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I think, I think there, there are nuances that are important, right? Like you certainly don't want to just, as a parent, and I, I certainly fall into this category, I certainly don't want to say that I don't care about performance or high standards, um, but being able to, 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 to keep that separate from the, the conveyances of belonging is, is what, what one of the, the yeah. challenges and, and the, the important strategies to keep in mind. Um, so the can, both being both challenging and nurturing at the same time. <laughs> right. And, and, and it's, and it's, again, it's just seeing them as, as distinct domains. Like you can put a lot of pressure on yourself, on your children to perform uh, at their optimal levels, um, but never have those performance outcomes impact how they feel about your um, your perceived belonging of them, or whether they belong in your family, or whether your love and caring will be will be taken away or questioned. I think that that's the challenge. I agree. One of the things I also wanted to talk about is that I feel like belonging or lack of it is 
um, inherent to our civil discourse. And I am interested in your thoughts about, like, I think it's an undercurrent that we may not be speaking about, I don't know, as well as we could be or with care. And I just am, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I feel like that belonging is, is central to the way that we are engaging with each other as a society, um, particularly here in the U.S., but maybe in other places as well. I just know what I know here. Yeah. What do you think? Um, but I think, I think this is a really important question. Um, and so the example I was going to give you is, is how belonging and social status interact, right? I think <clears throat> ultimately belonging is, is, is a sign of who can occupy a space and who, who cannot, who has to leave. A couple of Sundays ago, so I, I run for therapy because basically I carry a lot of stress with me, a lot of weight, and how I manage those, those pressures is by going for a run. Um, and on Sundays, I usually have a longer run. <clears throat> and a couple of weeks ago, I, I wanted to see if I could go faster for one of my longer runs. Um, it was just over um, a 13 mile run and I was coming into the last mile exhausted, just trying to make a certain time. Um, and as I was running, there was this narrow sidewalk and snow banks on either side. <clears throat> it was maybe, I would say, you know, 500 meters back to my house and where I could be finished and relax. And as I'm running, I see a man walking up towards me. Um, and as he sees me like, approaching him, he stands in the middle of the sidewalk, puts up his arms right in the middle of the sidewalk, so I had nowhere to go. And I thought, how wonderful. This man can probably see that I'm like finishing my run and wants to congratulate me almost like a finish line, right? So I, I keep running, expecting that I'll go through his hands and he'll cheer. But lo and behold, he actually stiff arms me. He completely blocks my path and, uh, and proceeds to turn around and start yelling at me. And I thought, how interesting, like how interesting that there are these um, perceptions uh, that he would have the right to occupy that space um, yeah. above my right to be able to pass through. And so as we think about what's going on culturally, um, and as we think about belonging, I think these are questions that are incredibly inseparable. Um, how we think about our privilege and our rights has a lot to do with the access to belonging that we grant or don't grant. And social justice historians and, and um, researchers have long recognized that social class and social status and social identity um, have been the mechanisms that sustain these inequalities between certain groups that um, ultimately who has access to these opportunities in this space and who is invited to belong or not feeds into the inequality that we uh, that we are contending with so in many ways you know it's interesting because if you can think of if you can think of a world where everybody had a hundred percent secured sense of belonging then that might be a society in which these inequalities would no longer be as, as pervasive. Um, but as far as I know, we still fundamentally have this need to belong and, and how we navigate the opportunities and the space that is granted to us or excluded, um, um, closed up to us, um, are, are connected. So I don't know that I have an answer. I just realized that, that they are connected and it's, it's important to think about those in, in conjunction. I really appreciate that. 
Yeah. Thank you for spending time with me today. This was so much fun. Thank you for your Saturday. It's so fun, right? It goes super fast too. That was that was so much fun, and I think your questions are just incredible. I think um, I would. Lo- I'm now going to look up your podcast and, and make it a regular thing. I am so grateful to Omid for sharing his insights with us. You can learn more about him by connecting with him on LinkedIn or at his website, omidfatui.com. Next week will be great fun. I'll be joined by our first guest who is also a currently sitting elected official, Mayor Cherie Wood of the City of South Salt Lake. We'll be talking about integrity and you won't want to miss it. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. You can find us at connectioncollaborative.com or send me an email at annalisa at connectioncollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 hours. Ninety two thousand hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb.